Welcome to episode 55, The Truth About Freedom from Religion. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and topics such as religious liberty, the census, earnings disparity in professional soccer, or immigrant children in cages at the border has come up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. See the show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for a link. The easiest way to stay up to date on the podcast is to subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play Music. It's also available on Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. And finally, the video version of the podcast is available on YouTube and bitshoot.com. And of course, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. So I just came across an article about a lawsuit brought by the Freedom From Religion Foundation against an Ohio middle school and their display of the Ten Commandments. It's another example of tyranny of the minority. Seriously, the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Notice it is freedom from, not freedom of. This organization uses previous unconstitutional Supreme Court opinions to impose their authoritarian dictates on the nation, or in this case, a single school, while spitting on the Constitution right there in the name of their organization. The Ten Commandments display was a gift from the class of 1926. That's right, 1926. And why can't this organization just let it be? The Freedom From Religion Foundation, FFRF, their press release reads in part, quote, we applaud the district for taking action to remedy this violation, end quote. And as I was reading this, I immediately thought, what violation are they talking about? So, of course, I continued reading, quote, the Supreme Court has ruled that displays of the Ten Commandments in public schools violate the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, end quote. So as soon as I read that sentence, I knew this was going to be a topic for the next podcast. And I was left wondering what religion was being established by displaying a list of behaviors that has served civilized society for thousands of years. The press release continues, quote, Students in our public schools are free to practice any religion they choose or none at all. In America, we live under the First Amendment, not the Ten Commandments, end quote. It's at this point that I immediately got very irritated. Unraveling the illogic of those few sentences requires immense effort. Otherwise, your head will explode. If the Ten Commandments are a religious symbol, then according to the press release, quote, students in our public schools are free to practice any religion they choose or none at all, end quote. So why are you suing to take away the freedom you just said they had? Secondly, what exactly does a display of a list a list of anything equate to living under. These sentences are a feigned attempt to appear tolerant since they say students are free too, while demonstrating complete intolerance. It's quite a remarkable feat of wordsmithing. The Ten Commandments are the basis of civil law in the Western world. Don't steal, don't murder, don't covet, don't commit adultery. Don't give false testimony. Keep the Sabbath. Honor your parents. I mean, come on. This is dangerous stuff. We can't expose the youth of America to such extreme ideas as these. Give me a break. Here's the kicker. According to the Freedom From Religion Foundation's website, it is a national nonprofit organization with more than 
31,000 members in chapters across the country, including over 800 members in Ohio and a chapter in Cleveland. So a group with the membership roles not large enough to fill your average basketball arena, a group that represents 8 one-thousandths percent of the United States population, a group that is openly hostile to religion in general and Christianity specifically, is responsible for removing a centuries-old symbol of how to operate in a civilized society. This despite the mountains of evidence that religion in general and Christianity specifically is much heralded by the founders of our nation. In fact, the Bible is the number one cited source by the founding fathers, followed by Montesquieu, John Locke, and Blackstone. The number of references from the founders regarding God and the Bible, how the Bible must be taught to our children, are endless. From Washington to Adams to Benjamin Rush, Fisher Ames, Governor Morris, John Jay, Noah Webster, James McHenry, Patrick Henry, Ben Franklin, Daniel Webster, John Quincy Adams, James Madison, Samuel Adams, John Witherspoon, John Hancock, Joseph Story, George Clinton. I mean, there are so many quotes from the Founding Fathers that I think I'm going to make an entire episode just on those. That, of course, does not qualify as evidence to counter the FFRF's desire to wipe Christianity out of public life in America. Sadly, up until less than a century ago, 1947 to be exact, America remained a country whereby religious people could avoid being legally accosted by atheist groups. So what happened in 1947? Well, you're probably not going to be surprised, but a Supreme Court case, that's what happened, called Everson v. Board of Education. After the publishing of the majority's opinion in Everson, we have been subjected to what I call death by a million bad presidents. The opinion stated that the First Amendment erected a wall between church and state, and that wall must be kept high and impregnable. There's one problem with that opinion. That's not in the Constitution. That is plain and simple made up out of thin air. The only wall of separation mentioned by anyone close to the Constitution was a letter sent by Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptists in 1801, but it ain't in the Constitution. Therefore, the opinion is null and void. More on the concept of nullification in a few minutes. As I explained in episode 16, The Truth About the Supreme Court, they do not have the power to legislate from the bench. They are not legislators. Legislators are elected and therefore accountable to the people. Judges are appointed and often are party or ideological hacks. And Supreme Court justices have lifetime appointments and are therefore not accountable to the people, which is why shit like Everson happens. It's how we get bullshit opinion for cases like Roe v. Wade. If you want more on that, listen to episodes 46 and 47. It's how we get bullshit opinions like Dred Scott and school segregation. I cannot make this point enough. The Supreme Court offers opinions on the cases they agree to hear. They do not produce rulings, nor do they produce decisions. They are not a judicial oligarchy. Unfortunately, what we have in America is, number one, ignorance and complacency on the part of the electorate and our elected officials who refuse to put the Supreme Court in their rightful place. And number two, we are dying a slow death of bad presidents. The president set in Everson opinion set in motion almost two dozen anti-religious Supreme Court opinions over the following 60 years. See what I mean by death by a million bad presidents? The court rewrote the First Amendment in 1947, and then subsequent courts cite the rewritten First Amendment and start offering a series of opinions that limit the free exercise of religious activity. 
It truly is outrageous. Here's a few examples. In 2006, there was a case that found that riders on a public bus cannot give fellow riders a book containing Bible stories. Oh, the horror of riding a city bus and having someone accost you by giving you a book. That's terrible. But imagine the emotional distress that would be caused if the book contained the Genesis story or Job or Paul. According to the court, passing out such a book is the same as the government establishing Christianity or Judaism as the official religion of the state. A 2003 case restricted the use of the word seminary in the awarding of degrees from a Bible school unless the state first approved the courses, teachers, and curriculum. You know, because the word seminary has a religious connotation, and if a seminary hands out degrees without state approval, you might as well have a state-sponsored religion. Various cases, going back to 1969 through 2005, found it unconstitutional for historic memorials to contain a cross. How the hell can the existence of a cross be construed as unconstitutional? A public cemetery cannot have a planter shaped as a cross if it is viewable by people because it may cause, quote, emotional distress, end quote. You thought I was being over the top when I mentioned emotional distress in regards to the public bus case. Nope. Unfortunately, I was not. That language comes from a 1990 case in California. I can't even make up anything snarky to say about that due to the, its level of stupidity. What about nativity scenes on public property? Oh yeah, they've been found unconstitutional because, you know, people seeing a baby in a manger might cause mass conversions to Christianity. We can't have that. You think that's an idiotic statement? I'll one-up myself by quoting the majority opinion from one of those nativity scene cases. Quote, The display is a representation of the nativity of Jesus and conveys an endorsement of religion in violation of the establishment of religion clause of the federal constitution's first amendment and therefore must be permanently enjoined or prohibited. End quote. I mean, you just can't make this shit up. Public Christian prayers have been found unconstitutional. As Justice Stewart said in his dissent of the Engel v. Vital 1962 school prayer Supreme Court case, said, quote, I cannot see how an official religion is established by letting those who want to say a prayer say it, end quote. He goes on to chastise his fellow justices for directly prohibiting the free exercise thereof clause of the First Amendment. It's the same story with the nativity scene case I just mentioned. It violates the establishment clause, but it ignores the free exercise clause. The use of the school's public address system to ask for prayers for someone was found unconstitutional because, you know, asking people to pray is the same as establishing a state-sponsored religion. Which religion exactly is being established by generically ref referencing prayer? I don't know. Just a religion. In another case, students were restricted from creating artwork that contained a religious imagery. Ooh. The words under God and the Pledge of Allegiance were once found unconstitutional. Did you know that valedictorian speeches containing personal comments about his or her faith was also found unconstitutional? Oh, you bet. You can't do that. You know, because the, the high and impregnable wall of separation that the Constitution did not erect between the state, church and state. Clergy offering prayers at a school graduation, that was found unconstitutional. Classroom libraries containing books on Christianity, found unconstitutional. The official use of the Bible in public education is, you guessed it, unconstitutional. I wonder if there's been a Supreme Court case on the teaching of the Koran or the Book of Mormon. The Supreme Court offered an opinion that a voluntary moment of silence in Alabama schools was unconstitutional 
not because the activity itself concerned the justices, but, quote, it is the purpose of the activity that we shall scrutinize, end quote. They found it unconstitutional because of its perceived purpose. They found it to be the equivalent of encouraging religious activity, and thus what? The establishment of a state-sponsored religion? I mean, seriously. These are supposed to be the brightest legal minds in the country, and they get away with shit like this as cover to rewrite the Constitution. And Alabama just rolled over. Why? What enforcement mechanism does the Supreme Court have? Hell, President Washington once proclaimed a public day of thanksgiving and prayer. How do you reconcile this fact with all this anti-religious bullshit coming from the courts? So that kind of explains how we got to where we are today. But since this is the Truth Quest podcast, I was wondering what is the truth of this thing called the First Amendment? I mean, it states, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And of course, it goes on to talk about freedom of speech, press, and the right of people to peacefully assemble. So based on just the one-time reading of the actual amendment, it is clear and obvious that none of the so-called activities I just outlined are establishing a religion. However, there does seem to be a whole lot of prohibiting of the free exercise thereof going on. I've always found it odd how advocates of one side of a constitutional argument conveniently leave out the parts that contradict their arguments. The only way around this fact is to rewrite the amendment, which is exactly what they did in the Everson case. Let's dig a little deeper into the First Amendment. Did you know that it does not apply to the states? It only applies to the federal government. That's what the words Congress shall make no law respecting means. States can pretty much do whatever they want. The Establishment Clause means the Constitution forbids the federal government from establishing a national denomination like Great Britain had done. So how did we get here? As I explained in episode 37, The Truth About the Bill of Rights, after the Civil War, Congress moved to protect the newly freed slaves from state discrimination, so they pushed through and successfully got the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments ratified by the states. Those ended slavery, provided equal protection and due process, and created and, the, and protected voting rights. Those are all good things. The rub comes from something called the Incorporation Doctrine, which includes the incorporating of various Bill of Rights Amendment protections, the First Amendment being one of them, into the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause, and then applying that to the states. In other words, the Supreme Court, contrary to some of its earlier opinions, applied rules designed to restrict the federal government to the states. This is by its very existence unconstitutional. How do I know that? Because I can read. I can study history. I can read what the drafters and the ratifiers of the 14th Amendment said at the time. As I explained in episode 37, if you read through the writings and speeches of proponents of the 14th Amendment, you can clearly see how their intention was to embody the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Equal protection simply means that laws must be enforced the same against whites and blacks. If whites were guaranteed a right, then so were blacks. Things like the right to enter into contracts, own property, inherit property, travel freely, and access the courts. The right to due process in a nutshell guaranteed procedural fairness for all people. Even Founding Father and Chief Justice John Marshall agreed with this in his 1833 opinion in Barron v. Baltimore, where he said this about the Bill of Rights Amendments, quote, These amendments contain no expression indicating an intention to apply them to the state government. Need more evidence of the First Amendment does not apply to the states? Research the Blaine Amendment, spelled B-L-A-I-N-E, from 1875. 
it proposed a constitutional amendment prior to the 14th Amendment. The Blaine Amendment stated, quote, No state shall make any law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, end quote. It went on to restrict, quote, any religious or anti-religious sect, organization, or denomination, creed, or tenets read or taught in any school, end quote. That amendment was rejected by the same Congress that passed the 14th Amendment. In fact, five other similar amendments which tried to apply the First Amendment to the states were rejected by that same Congress. So, despite the clear historical record of those who wrote, passed, and ratified the 14th Amendment that had no intention of coupling the First Amendment, the perversion of the Constitution by activist judges behaving as super-legislators continues. The Supreme Court is literally rewriting the Constitution. The new way to read the First Amendment is, instead of Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, it now reads students, citizens, teachers, schools, communities, rabbis, or pastors shall not express one's formerly constitutionally protected voluntary free exercise of religion in an official public forum or arena. Justice Rehnquist had this to say in his dissent of the 1980 Ten of Commandments case, Stone v. Graham. Now listen carefully. Quote, the Establishment Clause does not require that the public sector be insulated from all things which have a religious significance or origin. End quote. Rehnquist went on to quote Justice Jackson's concurring opinion in McCullen v. Board of Education in 1948, a case where a single offended atheist brought suit against the Illinois school system over elective courses with religious topics. Although Jackson concurred with the decision he, was, he found in favor of the atheist plaintiff, he pointed out that what the plaintiff was really doing was trying to completely cast out of secular education any religious aspects. He followed that claim with this quote, The fact that nearly everything in our culture worth transmitting is saturated with religious influences. So he admits that religion plays a big role in our country, yet he found for atheists. In the 1985 case, Wallace v. Jaffrey, that was the moment of silence Alabama case mentioned earlier, Rehnquist went off, setting the record straight on the First Amendment in a manner never done before or since. He said, quote, There is simply no historical foundation for the proposition that the founders intended to build a wall of separation that was constitutionalized in Everson. He continued, No amount of repetition of historical errors in judicial opinions can make the errors true i.e. the death by a million bad presidents. Back to Rehnquist. The wall of separation between church and state is a metaphor based on bad history. It should be frankly and explicitly abandoned, end quote. After reading the majority's opinion on the nativity scene case mentioned earlier, where they falsely and misleadingly proclaimed the Constitution mandates that government remain secular, even Justice Anthony Kennedy, no conservative, said, quote, This court is ill-equipped to sit as the National Theology Board, and I question both the wisdom and the constitutionality of doing so, end quote. Exactly. Not only are some of these so-called brilliant legal scholars replacing their so-called wisdom with activism, but they aren't even upholding their oath of office to protect and defend the Constitution. In a 1992 case, the Supreme Court concluded that allowing a rabbi to offer a prayer was equivalent to the government engaging in a religious practice. Yep, that really happened. Check it out for yourself in Lee v. Weissman. Oh, but that's not the worst of it. 
In his concurring opinion, Justice Souter arrogantly declared that he knows better what the establishment cause means than the people who wrote it. Quote, These practices prove, at best, that the framers simply did not share the common understanding of the Establishment Clause, and at worst, that they, like other politicians, could raise constitutional ideals one day and turn their backs on it the next. End quote. The dissent in this case included Scalia, Rehnquist, White, and Thomas. They pointed out that, quote, From our nation's origin, Prayer has been a prominent part of governmental ceremonies and proclamations, end quote. They went on to point out that George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison's first inaugural addresses all contain prayers. They go on to essentially lambaste the majority for writing an un-American opinion saying, quote, The long-standing American tradition of prayer at official ceremonies displays with unmistakable clarity that the Establishment Clause does not forbid the government to accommodate it, end quote. The more I learn about the corruption of some justices of the Supreme Court, the more I loathe it as an institution. Why we as a nation, they take their opinions every summer as gospel and automatically accept them as law is beyond me. The founders never envisioned that the people would be this passive. So I hear you saying, okay, Brodoff, you're doing a lot of bitching and moaning, but what's the solution? Well, the solution is, is pretty simple. It's non-compliance. The school district in Ohio mentioned at the beginning of the episode needs to team up with legal organizations like the Institute for Justice, the Alliance for Defending Freedom, or the Landmark Legal Foundation, or, or better yet, the state of Ohio, and simply refuse to acknowledge the constitutionality of past Supreme Court opinions around religious restrictions in public areas. This is the concept of nullification I mentioned near the beginning of the episode. It's a topic I cover in detail in episode 23. In short, the idea of nullification comes directly from the Constitution, its writers and ratifiers, specifically Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who authored the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions of 1798. They were written in response to the Alien and Sedition Acts. With those documents, the principle of nullification was solidified. They maintained that, number one, the federal government was created by the states who maintained their sovereignty. Number two, these sovereign states granted a few enumerated powers to the newly created federal government. Number three, all other powers remain with the states. And finally, four, if the federal government oversteps its bounds by passing unconstitutional laws or implementing unconstitutional regulations, the states are obligated to intervene in order to protect their people. In other words, the states have veto power over perceived unconstitutional acts by the feds. This would obviously include the Supreme Court, which is part of the federal government. As I explained in episode 16, no one, meaning no branch of the federal government, has a monopoly on determining the constitutionality of a law. Not the Supreme Court, not the President, nor Congress. As a matter of fact, all of these entities are subordinate to the states, or better put, the people of the states, since it was the people that created them. So when Congress and the President pass and sign a law that violates the Constitution, such as the Alien and Sedition Acts, or Obamacare, or same-sex marriage, the people of the states are obligated to oppose them because since they violate the Constitution, they are null and void. In the case of the Alien and Sedition Acts, they expired or were repealed by 1802, and the uproar over them likely cost John Adams re-election. In the case of Obamacare, the leftist activists on the Supreme Court, surprise, surprise, found the law constitutional because they don't care about the very document in which they were sworn to defend. Their liberal agenda is the most important piece. And of course, Justice Roberts essentially tied himself in a mental pretzel in order to come up with a reason to opine in its favor. 
Listen to episode 14, The Truth About Obamacare, for a deep dive. And in the case of the federal law denying recognition of same-sex marriages, President Obama refused to defend it. He essentially nullified it because he thought it was unconstitutional. Nullification simply means the states refuse to comply with bullshit unconstitutional mandates and laws. If the Supreme Court, Congress, and the President say Obamacare is the law of the land, they can enforce it. If they say marijuana is illegal, enforce it. If they say terminally ill people cannot try experimental drugs unless the Federal Drug Administration blesses the treatment, come stop me. And as I started this episode discussing, the Supreme Court says the display of Ten Commandments on public property is unconstitutional because some of their predecessors rewrote the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment while ignoring the Free Exercise Thereof Clause in that same very sentence, and another group of Supreme Court predecessors changed the meaning of the 14th Amendment by incorporating the Bill of Rights and applying it to the states, then the members of the court can come take down the display of the Ten Commandments. Otherwise, they can kiss our collective asses. These Supreme Court opinions turned into legislation must be challenged. Bad precedents needs to be struck down and or ignored or the proverbial slippery slope is inevitable. Look no further than the post-1947 carnage to religious freedom following the Everson opinion. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.